Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, the next edition, the fifth edition of the Hot Politics Lab online series. And uh, I see many uh, familiar faces among the list of attendees. So uh, I think by now we know the drill. Uh, since uh, the university is closed, we're meeting online and uh, we're having speakers uh, and attendees across the world. Um, hello to all of our North American attendees today. Um, and so, um, and generally, the Hot Politics Lab uh, tries to uh, bring insights, use insights from political psychology to understand all kinds of important affairs in the world. And of course, um, with uh, the coronavirus still spreading all around us, um, the Hot Politics Lab is dedicating these few weeks to uh, trying to understand uh, coronavirus from a political psychology perspective. Um, so therefore, uh, 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 we have a guest today, and I will yield the uh, virtual floor to uh, Bert Bakker to introduce her. Yeah, thank you, Gijs. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure uh, to uh, introduce uh, to you uh, Shane Kaderian, somebody who was high on our list, at least to come over to Amsterdam uh, at some point. Uh, and I'm at least very happy that uh, now with the corona crisis, we at least have a, a, an opportunity to meet uh, Shana in, uh, in the online person. Um, Shana is an associate professor uh, of political science at Syracuse University, um, has a PhD from Princeton, and um, wrote a very influential and excellent book on the role of anxiety in politics uh, that came out by in Cambridge University Press and was awarded the Robert E. Lane Award for Best Book in Political Psychology by the American Political Science Association in 2016. Other than that, uh, Shana has published very widely in uh, journals such as Journal of Politics, American Journal of Political Science and Political Analysis, and uh, is, uh, does excellent work uh, in the field of political psychology broadly. Uh, moreover, uh, as we've seen on Twitter, and she will also talk about today a little bit, she is also uh, en engaged um, with recent work on the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And so with that, uh, I'm very happy uh, to, uh, to hand the floor to you, uh, Shana. Oh, thanks for, so much for having me. I wish we were together in person, and I will at some point take up an invitation to come to Amsterdam. Um, I am going to um, talk today about um, like uh, my recent work on anxiety and politics. I'm trying to share my screen, so just give me one second. Um, and uh, I'm going to focus a bit on um, the, the book that I wrote with Bethany Albertson on the role of anxiety in politics. And then I will um, shift and talk a little bit about my recent work with Sarah Wallace Goodman and Tom Kopinski on COVID-19. Um, I usually start with a spiel about how important emotion is in politics. I don't have to do that for you um, because you all have accepted, I think, that emotion is an integral part of political life. Um, and we can see that in areas such as public health or climate change and terrorism and immigration. These are some of the areas that we look at in our book. Um, and obviously in the most recent coronavirus um, crisis that we're still um, living through, the feelings of threat and anxiety um, influence the ways in which people um, think about politics, the kinds of policies they want to protect themselves, and who they put their trust in 
to try and um, both feel better and bring some level of protection to them. So just so we're kind of on the same page, um, I think it's just useful to think about um, the, the definition that we use in the book um, about what anxiety is. We talk about anxiety as an unpleasant and aversive state that comes from uh, early warning signals of danger. Um, and as, as you all know, anxiety is important to survival. We need to know what kind of threats there are in the environment in order to keep ourselves safe. Now that doesn't always mean that anxiety is um, about the right things in politics or that it can't be used to manipulate pe people, but it does serve a very important purpose in both social and political life so that people have a way to identify what things are dangerous. Um, anxiety it also comes again from this sense of threat and uncertainty about whether or not you yourself will be affected um, and it is a negative state. Uh, and because anxiety is quite uncomfortable, people want to deal with that and cope with that. And they do that in a variety of ways. And we talk about, um, in Anxious Politics, we talk about um, three main ways that we see that people in political life deal with political anxiety, okay? The argument that we make in the book, the main argument, and then we apply this in different policy areas, is that political anxiety is quite uncomfortable. And what it leads to is people want protection. And so they support policies and political leaders that they believe will effectively protect them from threats. And that might be different, um, different leaders and different kinds of policies and different um, policy areas. And again, in the book, um, we, we talk about four different policy areas. Um, we talk about immigration, threats from immigration, um, threats from climate change, terrorism, and public health. Today, I'm going to focus mostly on public health, um, but we, I'd be happy to talk about some of the other issue areas as well. Um, when people are, again, uncomfortable and they want protection, they want political leaders, they want to put their trust in political leaders and policies they believe are protective. And they also seek out information that they believe that can be used to protect them from harm and mitigate those threats that have caused anxiety in the first place. Now, again, these are kind of our broad arguments and we apply them in these different um, policy areas. Um, and so in the, the book, we, these, the different empirical chapters um, look at these different coping mechanisms. Chapter three, we look at political information seeking. Um, chapter four, we look at trust in government, that is who citizens turn to in a time of crisis. And in chapter five, we look at our attitudes, that is the types of policies um, people, anxious citizens want. Um, again, across these policy areas, we think about our threats in a variety of ways. We, um, we look at what we call unframed threats. And I think this is a question that we can talk to about in the Q&A is whether or not the things that we labeled unframed threats or framed threats in the book really still apply. Um, so particularly in coronavirus, I think it's worth kind of talking through whether or not what we label disease outbreaks the, as an unframed threat, whether or not that still applies in a much more polarized time. Um, we have we we think about unframed threats as those that are kind of widely agreed upon causes of harm that these are harms that might include imminent bodily harm or death and that it doesn't take a lot of um work for elites to tell you you should be afraid of this kind of thing so here we would put terrorist attacks um 
disease outbreaks like COVID-19, we put under unframed threats. Again, I think we can talk about in the Q&A whether or not this still applies, particularly in the US. In our framed threats, we talk about, um, this is, these are areas where there is more debate about the cause of harms and where harms can be delayed and where it would take more works for elites to convince the public that these things are in fact harmful and that they necessitate policy in order to protect them. So in here, um, we talk about, in, in comparison to disease outbreaks, we would think about something like the obesity epidemic, and in, in comparison to a terrorist attack on the day or the months after a terrorist attack, something like more like the war on terror, which is a more sustained kind of um, threat and it takes more work from political elites to convince you of the need for policy change. Okay, so I'm gonna just briefly talk through um, some of our findings on trust um, and anxiety, particularly in public health. Um, I will say that um, all, almost all of the work in the, the book is experimental. And um, I would say I, I kind of look nice, but I spent seven years trying to figure out how to scare people about politics. And so I'm happy to talk to any of you about manipulations and um, the ways in which those work um, in the experiments. So in our trust um, chapters, we look at how political anxiety um, affects trust and who it affects trust in. And what we've, we argue is that political anxiety, again, opens people up and leads them to want protection. And so what this does is increases trust in people that, people, that um, the public believes will protect them against the harms that are causing them anxiety in the first place. So that is either they could help provide information for individuals or protect them directly from the harm. And this varies on the, um, the actor because not all actors have expertise in the area. And so in public health, for instance, we expect that when people are anxious about, say, COVID-19 or smallpox in our studies, that they should put increased trust in the people who can help give them information on how to protect themselves. And in, in the US, that's the Centers for Disease Control, that's um, the Food and Drug Administration, that's medical doctors, um, but it's not actors, political actors necessarily, okay? And in our kind of more framed areas, our expectation is that, um, how, how do we know who the experts are? Well, that's, the, people put their trust in the political party that is seen as better on the issue, that is the issue owning party, um, that comes that comes in less in the, the kind of public health work, but I'd be happy to come talk about that in um, the kind of issue ownership when, if we get to that in Q and A. Um, so again, um, uh, just briefly to talk a little bit more about this idea of party ownership is that in the U.S. at least the argument. Uh, is that there are the parties are seen as better on some issues and so when people are anxious about those issues it should benefit the political leaders of those parties because they're seen as the experts but in areas where there are clear experts say in public health we should see that anxiety should increase trust in those people with clear expertise so in 2011 um, one of the uh, studies in our book is a smallpox study where we ran an experiment with YouGov um, with 600 respondents where we randomly assigned them to read either about a, a story that was not about smallpox or we varied whether or not they um, 
read a story about a, a smallpox outbreak that had happened in the past. Um, just so we're clear, um, we, um, we did get IRB approval and debrief everyone and, um, and even because smallpox is in fact a um, eradicated disease and there has not been an outbreak of it since the early 1980s. But we did um, tell people in our present outbreak um, uh, condition that there was a current outbreak of smallpox that was happening. Um, and the idea here is to vary um, how worried people are about a public health outbreak, um, but keep in the kind of two conditions, um, the area of smallpox constant. So um, we had them read a New York Times article in the smallpox condition. We had pre-tested a number of other diseases um, from the WHO um, about things that had been, um, that are, are quite serious. Um, and then we had also varied um, in some pre-testing to what, know whether or not um, this kind of past versus present would be able to increase anxiety. And this is the one rather than kind of people versus animals or uh, near versus far. This is the kind of combination that seemed to increase anxiety the most. So we had people, again, read this um, story about the New York from the New York Times about an outgoing, uh, ongoing smallpox outbreak um, in the most, the anxiety producing condition. We then asked people about their trust in a variety of um, political agencies and individuals to provide them information about smallpox um, and also ask them a series of questions about um, civil liberties, about whether or not um, people who say uh, with smallpox should be put in quarantine. So some of the same kinds of things that we're seeing in COVID-19, we asked because these are what WHO at the time was labeling as best practices um, for a, a potential um, outbreak of infectious disease. So um, you can just see, I'll, I'll breeze through this relatively quickly. Um, we had 600 respondents. They were of generally good health. Um, and they, they are representative of the public um, in the United States. Okay. Um, and so just to show you, we asked people how strongly they felt a variety of emotions after they read the story. Um, and we find that the present smallpox condition, reading about an outbreak, is in fact quite threatening to people. It made them feel anxious and more so than reading about a smallpox outbreak that had happened in the past and more so than reading about a non-smallpox story, okay? And here's where I just want, I, I think we can, can um, make the connection to COVID-19. We asked people to come, um, what per, how much they trust different actors, including, again, relevant and irrelevant actors to handle smallpox as an outbreak. And what we find is, I'm not showing you the control condition here. Here, I'm just showing you the percentage of people who said they trusted each of these actors. Um, the, American, the AMA is the American Medical Association. HHS is the um, Health and Human Services Agency, FDA, uh, Food and Drug Administration, DHS is the Department of Homeland Security. You'll also notice we have some irrelevant actors at the bottom here. Um, so Oprah, um, who um, holds herself out to be a health um, maven, if you will, but is not in fact a doctor, um, the Federal Reserve and the Internal Revenue Service. We wanted to make sure that people weren't just increasing their trust in everyone. We wanted to make sure that they were in fact differentiating. And what we find is in these ones that are circled, we see a differentiation in who people trust in this present small 
monkeypox condition, that they're more likely to trust these health agencies um, than even people who read about smallpox that had happened in the past, okay? Um, we also find um, among people who are higher anxiety, um, and this is uh, measured post-treatment, that um, those people who are higher anxiety are more likely to support a variety of best practices that might protect people in a, um, a public health outbreak, but in fact um, would also deprive people of civil, li civil liberties, like requiring people to have a vaccine, destroying their property, making them quarantine. The support for those policies is higher among people who are anxious about public health, okay? I know I'm going quite quickly through all of this. I just want to cover the ground and then um, I'll go to the COVID-19 findings and then we can, um, I'm happy to answer any questions. So again, overall, and we have other trust studies. We have a study about immigration. We have another public health um, study where we ask about H1N1, which was in 2009. Um, so we generally find that anxiety but boosts trust in experts um, in, again, people who can handle the threat. And the political context can shape who those experts are, particularly with frame threats. That applies more to our immigration findings. Um, but I, I do think we're seeing a little bit of this um, in the COVID-19 outbreak and thinking about which experts are, are deemed to be most um, appropriate and how those messages might be undercut by political leaders. Okay, so like I said, I'm doing some work on COVID-19. We um, with a National Science Foundation rapid grant, Sarah Wallace Goodman and I, and Tom, uh, uh, with Tom Kempinski, um, had a, um, a survey that we put out in the field a couple of weeks ago. We're about to go back in the field with the same respondents. This week, we had 3,000 respondents, and we asked about a variety of um, health behaviors, including whether or not people are washing their hands, their social distancing. We also asked about um, separately some blame attribution, um, who is to blame for the lack of preparedness in the US, and a, a set of questions about immigration and trade attitudes. Um, and the major story of these findings in COVID-19 is um, one, that there's major differences across the Democratic and Republican Party in who is anxious about um, COVID-19 and the behaviors that they're actually pursuing. Um, so um, this is not to overwhelm you, but um, we, we had built in a set of experiments into this, um, I'll go back to that in a second, into this study with some messaging about who tells you that there's a threat and what you should do with it. And I will say like across all of the experimental treatments, we basically find nothing, null effects, no effects whatsoever, because what seems to be happening is that every effect that we see both on attitudes and behavior is simply driven by partisanship. So this is, these are odds ratios um, looking at whether or not people are um, comparing um, Democrats and people who are, have no party affiliation to Republicans um, in whether or not people are changing their behavior that's on the left, the panel B, A rather, um, whether they visited the doctor, they've changed their travel plans, avoided gatherings. We find Democrats in our study, and this is, this is similar to findings in other, uh, other studies as well, Democrats are just more likely to, rep to report that they are doing all of the behaviors and social distancing um, than Republicans. So it's not every single, if you just eyeball this, those, um, those Democrat uh, uh, 
uh, odds ratios are basically um, significant on all of these compared to Republicans. Um, and on attitudes, things like um, Democrats uh, estimate that there are going to be more deaths than Republicans, and this is in late March. Um, they, they're more worried about the negative effect on the economy. They're more worried that a friend will get sick. So there are major, major differences across um, parties in terms of how worried people are and what they're actually doing to deal with that worry um, based on their party identification. And this is controlling for where they live, their age, um, their income, and whether or not there are cases of coronavirus or what, how, how many cases are in the zip code that they live in. Um, so I'm, I'm going to just skip a little bit about the blame attribution. I want to get to the blame attribution and just, um, and then I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, so we also ask people for, um, to rank four actors and how, um, and who is responsible for the lack of preparedness. And um, we asked them about President Trump, former President Barack Obama, um, their state governors and the CDC. And so if you look at this left panel of who is most responsible, we ask people to rank all of these people. Um, Democrats are just much more likely to blame the, the current president than any other actor. And that is also true of people without a party affiliation. Compared to Republicans here at the bottom who um, blame the CDC and the and former President Obama significantly more than they blame um, the current president. Um, and then the, in this similarly, if you look at who people blame, at, who people give credit to as least responsible, right? So who we don't blame, Democrats don't blame Barack Obama and the Republicans do not blame the current president um, in part because of we argue shared party affiliation. Okay. So um, I'm going to just stop there. I have lots more to say, lot, looking forward to your questions. Um, the conclusion is, is um, the anxiety is, is incredibly consequential for contemporary politics. And what we find is that it increases support for expert actors and policies that the public will perceive, perceives will protect them. But that protection is determined by the political context. And here in 2020 seems to be um, determined in part also by your own party affiliation. Okay, so that's what I have. Great, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Shana. Um, we will now uh, move to the Q&A, and um, as always, you can, uh, if you hit the Q&A button on the, uh, on the, down on the screen, then you can type your question, and then I will read out the questions of the, the uh, participants. Uh, I currently have, no question yet, so uh, <laughs> let me, oh, oh wait, there's, there's a question from Christian. Actually, yeah, let's move to Christian. Yeah, um, thank you for the talk, super interesting. Um, um, I would print it, so I have two questions. One short one is, one short one is just, um, uh, you show that Republicans are blaming Obama. What's the story behind there? What are they actually blaming Obama for in the current COVID-19? I don't, as an outsider from not the US context, it seems very, weird and strange. Um, and the other question is then, um, you, show, or you show that um, anxiety leads to accepting these measures that restrict civil liberties, um, and then um, this is also interferes with trust in the institutions that, 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 that govern these, or that enact these, these restrictions. 
Um, that that reminds me of the talk that we, the first talk that we had by Michael Van Peterson, who was labeling this as, as optimistic anxiety, where um, you have to make people anxious to follow these uh, these um, procedures, uh, but you also have to give them some hope, some some optimism about um, how that works. So, um, is it purely trust, or do you see that there's also um, this positive emotion of of of, um, of hope of yeah, this positive emotion has a role here. Yeah, okay, these are great questions. So I'll take the first one first, which is why do Republicans blame Obama for lack of preparedness? Um, so I think there's two answers. The one is part partially um, there's a kind of right-wing media argument that um, the president couldn't have, the current president could not have done any better because there wasn't enough uh, he didn't inherit enough capacity to protect people and that this was, this was basically out of his control. So there, there's some of that. Um, and I, I do think some of this is just reflective um, casting of blame on the other party. So this is a bit of kind of negative partisanship that is um, that we're just seeing the only actor that we gave people to blame who was a politician who was not a who was not a Republican was Barack Obama. In this next round of studies, and so m my instinct is that if we gave people Democrats in Congress to blame, Republicans would put their blame there rather than Barack Obama. This isn't really about Obama necessarily. And so in this next round that we're sending out today, we're varying whether or not people are seeing Democrats in Congress or Obama because I want to actually test that. So that that's the first thing. The second thing, um, the second question about um, uh, optimistic anxiety, I like this idea. I, I would think of it more in terms of resilience of, um, I do think generally that anxiety is important in the first place to get people to comply with um, these stringent and, and quite um, difficult measures, right? So staying home, uh, you know, and, and not doing the normal things we do in social life, not going to work, not having schools open, these are, these are things that are actually difficult for people. Um, and then we, I do think that once you get over that, that hump of getting people to comply, um, that this kind of idea of hope um, or resilience, I think is really important. So I agree with, uh, with Michael Bank Peterson's idea. I think of it less as, I think you need to show people what is the uh, the effect because I do think what is really difficult for people is counterfactual thinking. I think the idea of knowing what would have happened had we not done things is very hard for people to understand. And so maybe we need to change. Um, in, maybe it's hope or um, in the future that things will be better. I think the other thing to think about maybe a different frame is how many people we have saved by staying home or how many, you know, so what is the positive case for this kind of counterfactual? How, who are the people who are now safe who would have been sick um, had we not done what we did? But I do think you're right to think that there is another phase after anxiety in order to get people to keep complying. Great. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, the next question is from uh, Stuart Soroka. Uh, he says, I might have missed this part of the new survey, but do you have evidence that anxiety is playing a role in current attitudes about COVID-19? 
and behaviors in response to those attitudes? Or is everything... Um, okay. Yep. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, there's one more line. <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, or is everything just totally overwhelmed by partisanship? Um, thanks, Stuart. Um, so uh, right now we haven't done the modeling to show the kind of results of anxiety on behavior, but what we are finding, we do have questions about anxiety, which seem to be driven almost wholly by um, partisanship as well. So we have both that anxiety, so these are, we have specific questions about um, worries, about family becoming sick, about you becoming sick, um, we have questions about um, worries about the economy. All of those uh, seem to be driven mostly by partisanship. The behaviors seem to be also driven by partisanship. Um, that is the health behaviors. So it's a little bit unclear to me whether or not Republicans are less worried and therefore less compliant, or they're less compliant because they're getting messages from the administration that it is a, or at least at this point, right, in late March, this is a hoax, it's not very serious, we don't need to do anything, and therefore they also adjust their worries about it. I think it's a little bit hard in the data right now to tease that out. My instinct is that it's more about the elite cues in, um, the, in the end of March. Um, we'll, we will be able to hopefully get some leverage on that question about which way the um, the arrow is going in our new survey that's going out now because we'll have variation in um, the states that people are living in um, and whether or not they've changed in terms of the policies that they've implemented. So um, there, there will be Republicans who are now living in states that have more stay-at-home orders and more um, social distancing who did not in March. And so we can see whether or not some of that um, some of that lack of compliance had to do with the policy or it had to do with some messaging. We also have questions um, as you know lots of surveys do about people's media sources so we'll be able to get some leverage again on whether or not the media sources people are taking in are are kind of driving some of this behavior as well. Uh, from Isabella Rabasso. She is a, a PhD student at uh, the Hot Politics Lab. Thanks a lot for the talk. Did you measure trust in experts and health institutions in response to COVID-19? If so, does partisanship influence which experts people trust similarly to how it influences who they blame? Yeah, thank you for the question. We do on our next round of surveys have a set of questions about trust in health institutions. So I'll be able to answer that question um, next time. Um, and we, we have, um, uh, so in the, one of the things I didn't talk about in the, um, uh, the earlier work on smallpox is we have a um, question about trust in the Surgeon General in the US um, in the smallpox study. Um, in that question, this, the Surgeon General is kind of like what we'd call America's doctor, but they're a political appointee. Um, and so in our study, we varied whether or not we described the Surgeon General in the smallpox study as either a political appointee or a medical doctor with expertise in infectious disease, or we didn't describe her at all. Um, and what we find in the smallpox study is that people put more trust in the Surgeon General when we describe her as an expert with, um, than as a political appointee. 
um, we are doing some of those same things in our second round of study um, uh, in, the, in the COVID-19. We're varying how we talk about the director of the CDC as either, again, a political appointee or a medical expert. We'll also be asking about trust in um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is kind of the forefront of the, the messaging in the U.S. on COVID-19. So I can't answer that right now, but we do have that lined up for the second round. Um, next question from Kuto. To what extent may these results be specific to the U.S. case? Any insights about how partisanship plays a role in other countries and, and systems? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think we are at a time in the U.S. where we're at a very high point of political polarization. And not only um, that the parties themselves are far apart on things like kind of on all sorts of issues, including issues of public health, um, at least at the federal level, the state levels are a little bit less polarized. Um, but we're also at this kind of, I think, hopefully apex of negative partisanship, which is that people not only identify with their own party, but they dislike the party, uh, the opposing party. And I think that poses some real um, challenges for both like creating anxiety that goes across parties and also implementing policies that could help keep everyone safe. So I think in less polarized systems, I think I've seen some evidence um, in the UK that this kind of variation in um, anxiety across um, parties is, is less. And I imagine that in less polarized systems or in the US at less polarized times, we could see more, um, uh, we'd be able to see more anxiety across parties and some more compliance. I think we would still see differences ac across parties, but the gaps should be smaller. So one of the, again, I, I think part of the story here in the US is the messaging from the Republican party, including particularly the president and right-wing media has been to downplay the risks of COVID-19 um, from the beginning. Some of that has changed, but not, not substantially. Um, and so I think when you see these variations in the ways in which the, the virus is being talked about as not a threat or it's a threat, but it's just like the flu, um, we should see this variation. And so in other countries, if we don't see that kind of wide variation in definition of threat and then policies to go along with it, then I don't think we would see this same kind of um, partisanship split in other places. Okay, um, question from uh, the United States, Claire Cutro. I was wondering if you could give us any thoughts you have on the people protesting lockdowns and social distancing in Michigan, for example. Is it that they aren't experiencing the same anxiety as most people are? Or is it just the anxiety, or is it just that the anxiety is focused on something different, losing freedoms and civil liberties? Sure, I think that's a great question. Um, so I think it's probably more that the people who are protesting are anxious about economic losses, although some of the kinds of flags that we've been seeing at these protests suggest that they're also anxious about some social issues as well. So the kind of the Confederate flags and the Nazi flags that we've been seeing at these kinds of protests suggest that this is not just about economics. But I would suggest it's also less about um, 
anxiety necessarily than anger at um, the situations that people find themselves in, both economically precarious, right? So we are experiencing, as many places are, some extreme changes in economic situations for people in a very short amount of time. There have been more unemployment claims in the US in the last month than, they, than there were in the Great Depression. Um, so I think there's a lot of economic precarity that has just come to the forefront and that people are looking for someone to blame and they're, and they're angry and they're angry and they're putting their blame on the kind of governors that they see as the kind of point people at, at, in keeping them economically precarious. Um, so I think my, my instinct is that it's more about anger um, than it is about anxiety, because that's what motivates people to like leave their houses and go and keep themselves um, in danger to, to protest. Great, next question is for Bert Parker. Yeah, thank you, uh, Shada, for uh, this excellent talk. Um, I, I have a, a question that, that re relates to a, to a puzzle that I've been having myself, in, in, and I see this again in the data that you show on, on for instance, the blame attribution, but also on the attitudes. And, and the question is, are we now seeing actual partisan-motivated reasoning? So, so people invested in their parties, vastly differencing in their attitudes, behaviors, and blame attribution? Or are we seeing uh, what Greg Huber would call uh, just cheap talk? Uh, in a sense that um, are, are people just signaling something? And so maybe focus a little bit more my question on the on the attribution of blame. Is, is So Republicans and Democrats uh, attribute blame to different actors. Um, if you follow the sort of Marcus Pryor, John Bullock work, uh, what, I wonder what would happen if you would, for instance, offer incentives, like, mm -hmm. you know, is this, I'll, I'll pay you a little bit, are they just signaling, well, you know, just the other party, or, or would, so would the effects differ? And the second question, and that relates maybe a little bit to, for instance, Martin Biscard's work recently in the HAPS, is that, would there be ways that maybe people know the facts, but they just attribute blame differently, so they, they factually know that uh, there might not, there might be a shortage of tests, there might be a shortage of supplies, mm -hmm. but they still want to attribute blame. So the question is, so, so, or do you think it's the, or do you think that this is actually science of partisan motivated reasoning in, in, uh, in a different, in the way that we classically have been talking about this? Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, and uh, I can, I can only speak to what I think is going on since we don't have any great, um, I think, leverage here. So one thing I'll say is I, I am somewhat skeptical, even though I use survey measures of behavior, right? I think there, it leads this to this question of whether or not, are people actually washing their hands less or are they just telling me they're washing their hands less? And this is not just Republicans. Are they saying they're doing it less just to say, well, this isn't a problem? Or are Democrats, you know, are they saying, oh, I'm washing my hands more because that's the socially responsible thing to do right now. So I will say the findings that we see um, are consistent with the behavioral data that so um, uh, Matt Gankowski and his colleagues at Stanford have on cell phone data. Um, so we can tell whether or not people are moving more based on where their cell phones are. Mm -hmm. And so 
we can actually see that Republican, in Republican and Democratic areas, um, which we know based on kind of election outcomes, that Republicans are moving around more and they're less at home than Democrats. Okay, so there, I, I have some confidence that these are, these are not just um, people telling us what they think we want to hear. But that doesn't actually answer your question about whether or not people are motivating themselves into this or they, they're really just trying to stay consistent in this motivated reasoning way or whether or not they just, they want to signal something about blaming the other party. I, I tend to think that the, the blame attribution piece is a little bit of cheap talk. I think it's of, I don't want to put the blame on Trump either because I don't hold him to the same standards as others or because I, I think of him as such a strong leader. And so whatever opportunity we gave Republicans to blame someone other than the president, they were going to take. Now, it, it isn't the case. So I, I do think, I don't really think they blame Barack Obama. I think it's just a, that's the opportunity we gave them to blame another party. So I do think there's a little bit of this cheap talk. Um, and then perhaps if we gave people some uh, incentive, they would kind of fall more in line with um, thinking about uh, who is really in charge now. I mean, we do find the same kind of thing in attributing economic um, pain and benefits across a variety of things across in parties. So this isn't all that different, right? Like we always, we, we see this kind of thing and like who gets the credit for a good economy is the party that I belong to and not the other party. Um, so I, I do think there, it's very hard to kind of tease out whether this is some sort of part of partisan motivated reasoning. I think there's some of that, but I think more likely, at least in the blame attribution, this is a little bit of cheap talk. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move to um, two more questions. I will okay. post them uh, at the same time because they're, they're very much related. The first okay. is by Amanda Friesen and the second by Martin Rosema. And so um, the questions go as follows. Have you looked at big five traits like neuroticism or conscientiousness in any of these connections between anxiety and public health scares? Uh, so that's Amanda's question. And then Martin says, linking up to Amanda's question, what are your key insights about potential moderating variables beyond partisanship? What elements of personality or contacts, con context determine most strongly who's anxious and more anxious than others? Uh, these are great questions, which I don't have great answers to, which is that we don't necessarily, we don't have any questions about the big five, although now you're giving me ideas that we should, um, I keep asking funding agencies for more money to do more surveys. So maybe we ask on our third round of surveys um, to get the big five on there as well. Um, I guess because I don't really, I don't have a great answer about personality. My, my again, my instinct would be that conscientiousness is, um, more related to the health behaviors than it would be to who becomes anxious in the first place. Although, and so I think neuroticism is probably more likely to be kind of a undercurrent of who is easier to make anxious. I will also just say that I think um, it, it is fascinating to think about the ways in which 
the kind of uh, the identity of partisanship seems to be this, at least in the U.S., an overriding identity um, at the moment. And I, part of that, I, I wonder, and we'll be able to see in our new data, is um, how much of this is about kind of social ties that people have to people of the other party, um, and whether people who live in kind of more mixed areas, um, mixed politically, will be more easily um, affected by um, the policy changes, and they'll have they'll have changed their behavior from one point to another. Um, I do. I I am of the mind that partisanship and motivated reasoning are a very 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 um, strong force in American politics. But I do think there is a time when, and this isn't an answer to the question, but this is like my more hopeful note. I do think there is a point where reality does in fact come in and that people will start to know people who are affected by COVID-19 and that actual knowledge in that personal knowledge um, in their social networks will at some point override the messages from elites. I am of them, you know, I do think elite messages and news messages are really, really strong and important, but I do think these personal experiences have the ability to override those, um, those messages from elites. Now, the question is whether or not that comes at a point when it's too late and we've had more suffering than we needed to, um, at least in, in some communities that haven't already kind of changed their social distancing. Um, so it, I, that seemed hopeful, but I, I didn't actually end on a particularly <laughs> hopeful note. So I didn't answer the question, which is, what are the other moderators? Um, and I, I think, um, again, I think it's uh, about, at this point, it has to be about personal experience. And it also, the kind of maybe news media consumption um, is another moderator that might kind of override partisanship to the extent that one of the kind of interesting things in the U.S. is that local media consumption has gone up quite a bit. Um, local media was very kind of in trouble in the U.S. Um, it is now kind of getting a renaissance because people are looking for local information about how to keep themselves protected. Um, and so maybe that kind of local media will be able to kind of moderate the effects of partisanship because it tends to be less partisan than national media. That is a hopeful message. <laughs> um, this actually relates to a question I, I was having, and 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 this this may be born out of ignorance regarding how Corona is is spreading through uh, the U.S. But uh, but the one thing I've heard is that New York is sort of the uh, the worst place uh, in terms of uh, the outbreak. Um, how important? It seems to me that 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 maybe the coronavirus is currently spreading faster in democratic areas than Republican areas. How much do you think this has an effect in 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 the results you you you've showed, especially given this personal experiences uh, thing you just sure. Mentioned? Yeah, no, I think that's really important, right? Is that people in different areas have different experiences with coronavirus. Um, so New York, um, San Francisco, um, our major urban centers in the U.S. are also more democratic than Republican and our Republican. And so this urban rural split means that Republicans who live in in more rural areas might not have experienced as much um, of the virus as people who live in democratic areas. 
So I do think that's the real kind of alternative explanation for why we're seeing Democrats do things differently. And also Democratic governors moved more and mayors moved more quickly in terms of um, implementing social distancing. I, you know, our models um, control for the number of cases in the areas that people live in by zip code. Um, they uh, we take into account urban-rural splits. We um, we try to to build that into the models as much as possible, and it still doesn't make the urb the kind of partisanship effect go away. Um, we would like to be able to, and we'll be able to see this in the new data. Um, there are. Uh, places that have Republican governors that went very quickly in their policy implementation of social distancing, Ohio and Maryland, for instance. Um, we would like to be able to see whether or not Republicans in those places are different than Republicans other places. We just haven't been able to, we just don't have enough um, data right now in those places to, to make those, um, those inferences. Yeah. Okay, that sounds interesting. Uh, regarding uh, differences between states, there's a question about this as well from uh, Sonne van Oosten. She's a PhD student at the University of Amsterdam. And she writes uh, that the Netherlands is perceived as a medical laissez-faire culture. Doctors tend to prescribe less medicine. People aren't admitted in the hospitals quickly, etc. Do you know of any differences in medical cultures amongst the states you surveyed in? Or are there any states with similar levels of infected people and deaths, yet different policies? Could that have influenced your data in any way? Oh, this is a good question. Um, federalism is very complicated in the US. And like, so any answer I usually give to like, why are things different across places is federalism. Um, so I, I think the way we might be able to get at those differences across the states, however, however this also, uh, tends to overlap with this Republican Democratic place is that we have some um, healthcare systems that are somewhat more, I'm not sure laissez-faire is quite right because they're still for profit. So it's not that laissez-faire, but um, we have some health systems that are more integrated and more like a European kind of system um, in certain states. So the Kaiser um, system in California and on the West Coast um, is tends to get better outcomes and also have um, I think they prescribe less medicine and all those same things. Um, the problem I think with that kind of variation is it also overlaps with partisanship in a way that I'm not sure helps us tease out things. And one way you might be able to get some inferences about this is looking on border states um, where people um, maybe tend to move more frequently across the border, maybe in the tri-state area in New York City, for instance, people live in Connecticut and New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, um, to see whether or not there are variations um, in, in just along the, the border, um, because they'll have different health systems, but um, similar kinds of people. I, I don't have a great answer, but I think that's, it's an interesting question. Two more questions, a short one, okay. I think, and a very, very, very big one. And I will start with the short one. Okay. Uh, the, the short one is from Neil Fashing, a, a uh, research master uh, uh, student uh, from uh, Amsterdam. And his question is, did you 
find independents were more similar in trust, anxiety, blame to Republicans or to Democrats? Do you think the results would differ if a more aggressive approach was taken by Trump? Um, so in the COVID-19 findings, we find that uh, independents are like Democrats. Um, they're somewhat in between, but they're more likely to be pursuing social distancing. They're more worried than Republicans. Um, and the question of do I think things would be different if, um, Repub if the, the president was more aggressive in his messaging? Um, yes, absolutely. Right. I think that uh, again, I think elite cues and right-wing media um, are um, are part of the issue in why Republicans are seeing less threat uh, from COVID-19 and are um, less likely to report doing the kind of um, hand-washing and all those things. Yeah. Okay, now the big question, and then I think okay. you could write a book about this. Uh, Martin Rosma again, his question is, I'm curious what you see as the path for emotion research in the next 10 years or so in political science. Not really a question even. But <laughs> so that's a great question. Um, I, so what I'll tell you is what I wanted to do in the next 10 years instead of studying COVID-19. But so I think that for emotions research, um, we've done a pretty good job in thinking about discrete emotions and how they matter and the ways in which they shape behavior. There's some interesting work coming out on anger. We have some kind of interesting work on disgust. I think what we know less about and what I wanted to do again in my next project, but who knows when that will happen, is think about the ways in which um, emotions compete with each other and may be uh, may undercut each other. Um, I think we want we'd like to know more about what I'd like to know more about is empathy and the ways in which empathy might be a kind of um, buffer against anxiety um, and how positive emotions and negative emotions both occur at the same time, but may, uh, do they neutralize each other? Do they, um, does one dominate? I think we know less about that. Um, and I think that would be an interesting path for anyone who is thinking about emotions research in the next couple of years. Um, so uh, Ted Brader and I are writing um, a, a kind of a, a chapter on uh, emotions for the handbook of political psychology. And so we'll tackle some of these issues. Um, the other thing I think it that a lot of the emotions, well, obviously not you guys, but a lot of the emotions literature has been very focused on the US. And I think we've thought less about what are the ethical implications of doing emotions research in say, um, uh, in comparative politics, particularly in authoritarian states, um, how do we think about whether or not we should be doing that research at all? Um, what are the ways in which we can think about debriefing and keeping our research assistants safe if we're doing lab in the field kind of experiments um, with emotion, particularly in um, less safe areas? Do, right? So I think there's a lot of, of, sort of interesting stuff going on in comparative politics. And I'm not sure that as a field, we've had a lot of conversations about um, what are our obligations to um, the people who we're studying, our research assistants, and, um, and the field when, we're, when we wanna study places that might be less stable. 
So um, I have some thoughts on the area. I hope that you all um, continue to do the great work that you're doing and I get to share it with you and you get to share with me. Um, and this has been really fun. That sounds fascinating. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to reading that. Um, we're out of time, unfortunately, and I give it now to Bert Bakker to conclude this meeting. Yeah, so uh, uh, thank you, uh, Shana, for this, uh, this, this hour uh, with, with, with great discussions on the role of uh, emotions and anxiety in, in particular. Um, I want to end with thanking you for, for, for spending the time with us. Um, I also uh, want to invite the people who are uh, attending um, from all over the world today uh, that uh, next week, uh, Chris Karpovich and Josh Gubler will jointly talk about something that Shana was already hinting at a little bit is uh, what they call mixed affective state. So uh, they have, they're working on, uh, on, on question of what are people experiencing distinct discrete emotions or might there be more mixed packages? So I think that's gonna be really interesting. May 1, we have uh, Melissa Baker from UC Merced and Ming Boyer from University of Vienna. May 8, we have Stephen Reicher from St. Andrews University. And on May 15, uh, Gordon Pennycook from University of Regina. So uh, a good uh, mix of people from all over the world that literally say, um, I hope that many of you will continue to join. Uh, and I want to thank you for your time and wish you a really good weekend.